You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of um, three lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Redemption of Thinking. They were presented, they were given in May of 1920 in Dornach, Switzerland. And uh, there's an afterword, I believe, by A.P. Shepard and Mildred Robertson Nicole. Lecture one, entitled Thomas and Augustine. And it's prefaced by a prayer of St. Thomas. Ineffable Creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom hast appointed three hierarchies of angels and set them in admirable order high above the heavens and hast disposed the divers portions of the universe in such marvelous array thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work, thou who art true God and true man, and livest and reignest forever and ever. Amen. And that was the prayer of St. Thomas. Again now, Lecture 1, Thomas and Augustine. The subject upon which I wish to speak in these three lectures is that profound philosophic movement of the Middle Ages known as scholasticism, which crystallized around the personalities of Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas. And I wish to approach it from a somewhat unusual angle. It is generally assumed that the relation between philosophy and Christianity was, to a large extent, determined by this great movement, and it is usually treated from that point of view. This approach was revived by the direction of Pope Leo XIII to his clergy to make Thomism the official philosophy of the Roman Catholic Church. Footnote. On August 4, 1879, Leo XIII published the encyclical Eterni Patri, from which the revival of scholastic studies originates. End of footnote. The subject, therefore, is today of special importance. I do not propose, however, to make my approach from this traditional angle, but rather to see scholasticism against the deep historical background out of which it arose. The first lecture, therefore, sets out this background and is really introductory to the second lecture, in which we shall be dealing with the real nature of Thomism itself. In the third lecture I shall try to make clear what I have in view in bringing the subject before you in this way. I shall endeavor to be quite objective in my approach, 
for I have already had a somewhat peculiar experience in regard to Thomism. At the beginning of the century, when that doctrine which we are accustomed to call monism reached its height, the Giordano Brunos Union was founded in Germany, ostensibly to encourage a free, independent view of life, but in reality to strengthen the materialistic side of monism. Because I found it impossible to take part in all the empty phrase-making which was then being given out to the world as monism, I gave a lecture on Thomism to the Berlin branch of the Union, in which I sought to prove that a true and spiritual monism had been given in scholasticism and had been expressed in forms of the most accurate thought imaginable, of which more recent philosophy, under the influence of Kant and Protestantism, had basically no idea, nor any longer the capacity to achieve. Footnote. Rudolf Steiner, in his autobiography, The Story of My Life, amplifies in chapter 29 the above account of the founding of the Giordano Bruno Union and of his address. In regard to the latter, he says, quote, I brought upon myself the direct opposition of the leadership of the Giordano Bruno Union when I read a paper on monism. In this I laid stress upon the fact that the crude dualistic conception, quote, matter and spirit, close quote, is really a creation of the most recent times, and that likewise only during the most recent centuries were spirit and nature brought into the opposition which the Giordano-Bruno Union would oppose. Then I indicated how this dualism is opposed by scholastic monism. Even though scholasticism withdrew from human knowledge a part of existence and assigned this part to faith, Yet scholasticism set up a world system marked by a unified monistic constitution, stretching from the Godhead and the divine to the details of nature. I thus set scholasticism higher than Kantianism. Quote, this paper of mine aroused the greatest excitement. It was supposed that I wished to open the road for Catholicism in the Union. Close quote. Close. End of footnote. In saying this, I fell foul of the official monism of the unions. As a matter of fact, it is very difficult nowadays to speak on such subjects as these without incurring the charge that one is seeking to advance some particular point of view. I wish, therefore, to emphasize the fact that in these lectures I am trying to make a completely objective approach to this subject. Thomas Aquinas, in the 13th century, was trying to grasp in clear-cut thought the problem of the universe. He did this in a way which is extremely difficult for us to follow, because presuppositions of thought are attached to it which people of today can scarcely possess, even though they are philosophers. It is necessary to put oneself completely into the way of thought of Thomas Aquinas and of those who came before and after him. One must know how to understand their concepts and see how these concepts lived in the souls of these men of the Middle Ages. These are considerations which the history of philosophy treats rather superficially. If we look at the central figure of our study, Thomas Aquinas, we might describe him as one who, in the main stream of Christian philosophy in the Middle Ages, disappears from sight as an individual. He became, in fact, only the expression of a point of view, which, while it was implicit in the whole field of world philosophy, 
came to its full and complete expression through him alone. Thus, when we speak of Thomism, we are considering something exceedingly impersonal, which manifested itself through the personality of Thomas Aquinas. Footnote, quote, The philosophy of Tom- St. Thomas is not the property of St. Thomas. It is the common property of the Church and mankind. It is the only philosophy whose peculiar characteristic is that it is peculiar to nobody, strictly impersonal, absolutely universal. Close quote. Jacques Maritain, titled St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by J. F. Scanlon. End of footnote. On the other hand, when we look back to Augustine, that first and greatest predecessor of Thomism, we immediately see that the picture is dominated by a full and complete personality, lacking nothing that could be present in a single individual. With Augustine, everything is personal. With Thomas Aquinas, everything is completely impersonal. In Augustine, we have to do with a man struggling with himself. In Thomas Aquinas, with a medieval church defining its attitude to heaven, to earth, to mankind, to history. A church which, one might almost say, expressed itself as a church through the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. Now, between the lives of these two men there lies a significant double event, and unless it is taken into consideration, it is impossible to understand their relationship to one another. The event to which I refer is the Edict of Justinian in 529, closing the schools of philosophy in Athens and banishing the philosophers. Footnote. In A.D. 528, quote, Justinian issued several stringent constitutions, one of which, forbidding persons persisting in the madness of Hellenism to teach any branch of knowledge, struck directly at the Athenian professors. In 529, he sent a copy of the then just published titled Codex Constitutionum, which contained this ordinance, to Athens, with a prohibition to teach law there any longer. Shortly afterward, another constitution appeared, prohibiting the further teaching of philosophy at Athens, and at the same time such property as yet remained to the Platonic Academy was seized and applied to public purposes. This finally extinguished the university. Close quote, Viscount Bryce in DCB 3551 Codex, there's a bunch of numbers there, end of footnote, let me read that again. The event to which I refer is the Edict of Justinian in 529, closing the schools of philosophy in Athens and banishing the philosophers, and his declaration of heresy against Oregon in 543. Augustine's view of the world only becomes clear when we bear in mind his historical background and also realize that after his time the historical situation became completely changed owing to the fact that the powerful influence on the Western world, which had spread from the schools of philosophy in Athens, had come to an end with Justinian's edict. Footnote. The importance of this event has been pointed out by W. R. Inge, who writes, quote, When Justinian closed the schools of Athens, he marked the end of a thousand years of free thinking on all things sacred and secular, such as the world has ever enjoyed, never enjoyed since, close quote, from title Mysticism in Religion, page 90. End of footnote. For although it has not always been so recognized by historians, the influence of Greek philosophy was very powerful in the Roman world, 
and remained so right on into the sixth century. After that it declined, and what remained of it in the subsequent stream of philosophy in the West was quite different from that which Augustine knew in his lifetime, in the fourth and fifth centuries. As I have already said, Augustine was a fighting personality in the fullest sense of the word. The manner and method of his struggle will become clear to us only if we understand the exact nature of the fight. There were two problems which confronted Augustine with an intensity of which we today, when the problems of knowledge and of the soul seem so much less vital, have really no idea. The first problem can be put thus. Augustine was striving to find the nature of that which man can recognize as truth that will really support him and sustain and fill his soul. The second problem was this. How can the presence of evil be explained in a world which, after all, is meaningless unless it has at least some element of moral purpose? How can one explain the pricks of evil in human nature, which, according to Augustine's view, never cease? The voice of evil which is never silent, even if a man strives honestly and uprightly toward the good. I do not believe that we can get near to Augustine if we take these two questions in the sense in which the average man of our time, even if he were a philosopher, would be apt to take them. We must look for the special shade of meaning which these questions had for a man of the fourth and fifth centuries. Augustine lived in his earlier days a life of inner disturbance and dissipation, but these two questions had always confronted him. In his personal relationships he was placed in a dilemma, for his father was a pagan and his mother a pious Christian, who took the utmost pains to convert him to Christianity. Footnote in Book 3, Part 4 of the Confessions, Augustine relates how in his nineteenth year he came in the course of his studies on Cicero's Hortensius, now lost. This book made a profound impression on him, but he qualifies it in these words, which are a striking testimony to the influence of his mother on his life. Quote, this alone checked me, thus enkindled, that the name of Christ was not in it. For this name, according to thy mercy, O Lord, this name of my Saviour, thy Son, had my tender heart even with my mother's milk, devoutly drunk in and deeply treasured. And whatsoever was without that name, though never so learned, polished, or true, took not entire hold of me. Close quote, end of footnote. At first he could only be won to a certain seriousness of mind, which drew him toward Manichaeism, a view of the world which we shall shortly examine. After some years, however, he felt himself more and more out of sympathy with Manichaeism, and eventually, not because he was driven by the urge of his soul or some other lofty motive, but because the whole philosophical life of the time led him that way, he fell under the sway of the school of the skeptics. This school had evolved at an earlier time out of Greek philosophy, but though it still survived in the days of Augustine, its influence had waned. It became, for Augustine, only an introduction to Greek philosophy. In so doing, however, it led to something which for a time 
exerted a very deep influence on his inner life and on the whole evolution of his soul. This new influence was Neoplatonism, but a Neoplatonism of a different kind from that which is generally called by that name in the history of philosophy. Augustine was more deeply affected by Neoplatonism than is generally supposed, and his whole personality and struggle can be understood only when one comprehends how deeply Neoplatonic philosophy entered into his soul. If we study accurately the inner development of Augustine, we shall find that the break was less violent in his transition from Neoplatonism to Christianity than it was in his exchange of Manichaeism for Neoplatonism. Footnote, quote, Living in the midst of the fading culture of antiquity, a man like Augustine experienced the death of the Eastern view of the world. He experienced it in Manichaeism, of which, as a young man, he had been an ardent adherent. He experienced it, too, in Neoplatonism. It was only after struggles of unspeakable bitterness, having wrestled with the teachings of Mani, of Neoplatonism, and even with Greek skepticism, that he finally found his way to the thought and outlook of Roman Catholic Christianity. Augustine writes his confessions in the year A.D. 400, as it were on tables of stone, close quote, from Rudolf Steiner titled The Development of Thought from the 4th to the 19th Centuries, a lecture at Dornach, May 15, 1921, and a footnote. Indeed, one might say that insofar as he found it possible to be a Neoplatonist, he always remained one, but that because he was only capable of becoming a Neoplatonist up to a point, his destiny led him to the discovery of the historical fact of Christ Jesus. Footnote. For Augustine's own view of the differences and resemblances between Neoplatonism and Christianity, see title Confessions, part, uh, chapter 7, part 9, 10, and 20. End of footnote. The transition from Neoplatonism to Christianity, therefore, was not a sudden jump, but a natural development. But what Christianity came to mean to Augustine cannot be understood unless Manichaeism is first examined. Manichaeism was a remarkable system which was opposed both to the pagan world outlook and also to the Old Testament and Judaism. Founded in the 3rd century AD in Asia by Mani, a Persian, it had already become a world current of thought at the time when Augustine was growing up. It had spread through North Africa, where Augustine spent his youth, and many people of Western Europe had been captured by it. Footnote, quote, Manichaean dualism penetrated into Europe in two waves, separated by an interval of some three centuries. The first wave, that of primitive Manichaeism, spread between the third and seventh centuries over the whole of the Mediterranean world, extending from Syria, Asia Minor, Judea, to Egypt, northern Africa, Spain, southern Gaul, Italy, and penetrated into the two centers of Roman Christian civilization, Rome and Byzantium. The second wave was that of a revived and in many respects modified Manichaeism, sometimes known as Neo-Manichaeism. It appeared in Europe with the dawn of the Middle Ages, and between the ninth and the fourteenth centuries swept over all southern and part of central Europe, from the Black Sea to the Atlantic and the Rhine, close quote, from Dmitri Obolensky's titled The Bogomils, A Study in Balkan Neo-Manichaeism. 
End of footnote. Manichaeism, however, had extraordinarily little effect on subsequent history. In defining it, it must be pointed out that the general outlook of this philosophy is more important than what can be described as its actual content. The first and most remarkable thing about it is that the division of human experience into a spiritual and a material side had no meaning for it. The words or ideas, quote, spirit, close quote, and in quotes, matter, convey no distinction to it. It sees the spiritual in what appears to the senses as material, and when it speaks of the spiritual, it does not rise above that which manifests itself to the senses. It is true to say of Manichaeism, much more so than the abstract and intellectual world of today can realize, that it actually saw spiritual phenomena, spiritual facts, in the stars and their courses, and that in the mystery of the sun it saw a spiritual reality manifesting itself to us on earth. Footnote. Steiner speaks of the relation of Augustine to Manichaeism in another lecture. Quote, Augustine passed through the impressions of the most diverse worldviews. Above all, he passed through Manichaeism and skepticism. He had taken all those impulses into his soul, which one gets, if, on the one hand, one looks at the world and sees everything as ideal, beautiful, and good, all that is filled with wisdom, and then, on the other hand, sees all that is evil. Now we know that Manichaeism tries to reconcile these two streams in the cosmic order by assuming an eternal polarity, an everlasting dualism between darkness and light, evil and good, that which is filled with wisdom and that which is filled with evil. Manichaeism comes to terms with this dualism in its own way, only by uniting certain old pre-Christian basic concepts with its acceptance of the polarity of world phenomena. Above all, it unites certain ideas which can be understood only when one knows that in ancient times the spiritual world was perceived by humanity in atavistic clairvoyance and perceived in such a way that the content of the visions resembled in appearance the sense perceptions of the physical world. Now, because Manichaeism took into itself such ideas of the physical quote, appearance close quote, of the supersensible, it thereby gives many people the impression that it is materializing the spiritual, as though it presented the spirit in material form. That, of course, is a mistake, which more recent views of the world have made, a mistake made even by theosophy, in brackets, and also by modern spiritualism, translator, close brackets. Augustine actually broke with Manichaeism because in the course of his purified life of thought he could no longer bear this apparent materializing of the spirit. Close quote. Rudolf Steiner, title, The Bridge Between the Ideal and the Real. Again a further quote, I fell among men who held that that light which we see with our eyes is to be worshipped as a chief object of reverence. I assented not, yet thought that under this covering they veiled something of great account, which they would afterward lay open. Close quote. Augustine, his from his book De Vita Beata. End of footnote. It conveys no meaning for Manichaeism to speak of matter or spirit separately, 
for to the Manichaean what is spiritual manifests itself in the form of matter, and that which appears as material is itself spiritual. Therefore Manichaeism speaks quite naturally of astronomical things and world phenomena in the same way that it would speak of moral phenomena or happenings within the evolution of the human race. Thus the existence side by side of in quotes light and in quotes darkness which imitating something from ancient Persia it embodies in its philosophy is both a physical and a spiritual fact. In the same way Manichaeism speaks of the sun in its movements in the heavens as related to the moral realities and impulses in the development of mankind. It sees the relation of this quote, spiritual physical close quote, sun to the signs of the zodiac as the relation of the original being, the source of the world's light, to the twelve beings through whom he delegates his activities. But there was something further about Manichaeism. When it considered man, man did not appear to its eyes as we see him today. To us, man appears as a kind of climax of creation on earth. Whether we think more in material or in spiritual terms, man appears to us as the crown of creation on earth, and the kingdom of man as the highest kingdom, or at least as the crown of the animal kingdom. Manichaeism could not agree to this. In its view, that which has walked the earth as man from the beginning of history until now is but a pitiful remnant of that being which, through the divine essence of light, should have become man. Man should have become something entirely different. What had happened, it held, was that primal man, created by the power of light, as an ally in the fight against the demons of darkness, had been defeated in his fight against these demons, but had been rescued by the kingdom of light and transplanted by benevolent powers into the sun. The demons, however, managed to snatch away a fragment of this primal man who was escaping into the sun and to form from it the earthly race of man. The earthly race, therefore, is a weaker addition of that which had been rescued from its defeat and removed to the sun during the great struggle of spirits. It was in order to lead man back to his original destiny that the Christ being appeared, and through his activity the demonic influences are to be removed from the earth. Footnote. Dr. Burley maintains that, quote, Manichaeism offered a comprehensive system of truth, a cosmology, a soteriology and an eschatology. The Manichees, with whom St. Augustine had to do, claimed to be genuine Christians. It appears that Mani had styled himself, quote, Apostle of Jesus Christ, close quote, in the opening address of his fundamental epistle, an address quite Pauline in form. It is clear also that Monica and St. Augustine, too, never regarded this, his disciples as anything else than Christians, albeit heretics. It was this profession of Christianity that made possible his association with them. Here was a Christian philosophy. Manichaeism may be crude, but it is nevertheless more profound, profound in some respects than Cicero. It raised deeper issues than those which he or his Greek masters ever faced. We may fairly claim that contact with Manichaeism first made St. Augustine deeply aware of the problem of evil 
so preparing the way for his later understanding of St. Paul. Close quote. Titled The City of God, Chapter 2. End of footnote. I am well aware that even as much of this view of life as can be put into modern language can scarcely appear intelligible to us, for the whole of it comes from substrata of a soul experience, which is essentially different from that of the present age. But the important part, and that which concerns us at the moment, is what I have just described. However fantastic may appear to us this Manichaean picture of world evolution, the Manichaeans themselves did not regard it as something which could only be grasped in an abstract spiritual way, but as a spiritual fact which revealed itself to their physical eyes in what we today should describe as pure sense manifestation. This Manichaean philosophy, with its principle of the spiritual material, was the first powerful influence on Augustine, and the problems connected with his personality can only be solved if one bears this in mind. We must now ask ourselves why Augustine became dissatisfied with Manichaeism. His dissatisfaction arose not in regard to its mystical content, but in regard to its general outlook. At first, he was attracted by the physical self-evidence and the pictorial quality with which this philosophy presented itself to him. But then something arose in him which refused to be satisfied with that attitude which regarded matter spiritually and the spiritual materially. One can only rightly understand this if one faces as a real truth what has often been advanced as a theory, namely that Augustine was fundamentally more akin to the men of the Middle Ages, and even perhaps to men of modern times, than he was to those men who through their soul mood were the natural adherents of Manichaeism. Augustine had already reached, to a certain extent, what I would describe as a, quote, a new level, close quote, in the life of the human soul. I have often pointed out what I mean by this. In our intellectual and abstract age, we always tend to see the history of any century only as the result of influences at work from the preceding century, and so on. In the case of an individual, however, it is pure nonsense to say that something which happens in, let us say, his eighteenth year is merely the consequence of something else which happened in his thirteenth or fourteenth year. For in between those years, something has taken place which springs from the profoundest depths of human nature, and which is not the result of anything that has gone before, in any sense in which one is justified in speaking of cause and effect. It is something which is universally inherent in the nature of man, namely adolescence. Now, a sudden jump, in quotes, of this kind, also takes place at certain times in the life of humanity as a whole. And we must assume that Manichaeism lay before such a jump, and that after it there arose that attitude and condition of soul which developed in Augustine. He found himself unable to come to terms with his own soul life, 
unless he could rise above the Manichaean idea of the material spiritual to something purely spiritual, something fashioned entirely in the spiritual world, something far more free of the senses than the Manichaean viewpoint. Thus Augustine had to turn away from the pictorial, perceptible world outlook of Manichaeism, and this first change in his soul was an intense experience, as we can read in his own words, quote, the weightiest and almost the only reason for error, one from which I could find no escape, was that when I wanted to think of God, I had to picture to myself a bodily substance, for that which I believed could not exist in that form. Footnote from the Confessions 5 and a footnote. In these words he refers back to the time when Manichaeism, with its sensory-spiritual and spiritual-sensory outlook, lived in his soul, and he characterizes this period of his life as one of error. He needed a point of view to which he could look up as having its foundation in the essential being of man, something which did not, like Manichaeism, regard the whole sense world as being in itself directly spiritual material. All this struggled to the surface of his soul with an intense and overpowering earnestness. Quote, I asked the earth, and it replied, I am not it. Close quote. And all the things on the earth confessed the same. Close quote, full quote. What was it that Augustine asked? He asked what the divine really is. And the earth replied, quote, I am not it. Close quote. Parenthesis, the Manichaean reply would have been, quote, I am it as earth, insofar as the divine expresses itself through earthly creation. Close quote, close parenthesis. Augustine then continued his questioning. Quote, I ask the sea and the depths and all that lives in them. Quote, we are not your God, close quote, they replied. Quote, seek above us, close quote. I asked the sighing winds, and the whole vault of heaven with all its inhabitants answered, quote, The philosophers who sought the ultimate nature of things in us were mistaken, for we are not God. Quote. I asked the sun, the moon, and the stars. They, too, replied, quote, We are not God, whom thou seekest. Close quote. Full quote, close. Confessions, part 10. End of footnote. Thus, not in the sea, nor in the heavens, in nothing, in fact, which can be observed through the senses, was the divine to be found. Footnote. An interesting comparison with this is the fact that when Jehovah revealed himself through Moses as the I Am, he also gave the commandment, quote, Thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image, nor the likeness of anything that is in the heavens above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them, nor worship them. This, which was fifteen hundred years before Augustine, was not the result of a soul evolution. It was a divine revelation, in the establishment, through a direct covenant, of a personal relationship between Jehovah and a whole nation, which was designed to awaken that Jewish sense of individuality in which the Incarnation could take place. It necessitated the same supersensible concept of the spiritual. End of footnote. 
In this way Augustine struggled free from Manichaeism, and especially from that in it, which, from the angle of our present study, must be described as its most significant element. For in his search for a spiritual which is free from anything to do with the senses, Augustine is already standing in advance of his time, in that very era of the soul evolution of humanity, the era of the awakening of the consciousness of individuality, in which the soul had to struggle to free itself from seeing the material in terms of the spiritual and the spiritual in terms of the material. Footnote, see page 47 of this book, end of footnote. It is in regard to this attitude towards spirit and matter that we entirely misunderstand Greek philosophy. When the Greeks speak of ideas, of concepts, when Plato speaks of them, men of today think that Plato or the Greeks give much the same meaning to, quote, ideas, unquote, as we do ourselves. But this is not so. For the Greeks spoke of ideas as of something which they perceived in the outer world, just as they spoke of colors or sounds as percepts. The Greek sees the idea just as he sees colors, and he always keeps that material spiritual, spiritual material attitude of soul, which does not rise to what we know as sense-free spirit reality. Whether we call this sense-free spirit reality a mere abstraction or the actual content of the soul, we need not decide at the present moment. The point is that what we know as the sense-free life of the soul is something of which the Greek takes no account. He does not make a sharp distinction, as we do, between thinking and the outward activity of the senses. The whole Platonic philosophy must be seen in this light to be fully understood. Footnote C note 1, page 75, end of footnote. Now, it is this outlook, which was already fundamentally present in the whole Greek life of view, that we find in Manichaeism, but colored with a somewhat oriental tinge. We can therefore say that in this regard Manichaeism is only a post-Christian variation, with this oriental nuance, of something which already existed among the Greeks. We do not even understand that great genius Aristotle who closes the circle of Greek philosophy, unless we realize that though he had almost arrived at an understanding of abstract thought, free from all evidence of the senses, nevertheless, whenever he speaks of concepts, he still keeps within the meaning of the traditional experience, which regarded concepts as belonging to the outer world just as much as sense perceptions. Footnote. Quote, there was much in the Grecian wisdom, even though confined to abstract concepts, that produced in man ideas which really made possible some understanding of the spiritual world. Then that wisdom came to an end, and nothing of the spiritual world could any longer be understood with ideas that were already dying out. It is a peculiarity of Hellenism that a man of the present time can very easily have the feeling that Greek ideas are really applicable to something entirely different from that to which they are applied. The reason for this is that the Greeks still had the quote-unquote ideas which had been derived from supersensible imaginations, 
but no longer retained the imaginations themselves. Parenthesis. For the use of the word imaginations, see page 40, note, close parenthesis, continuing with the footnote. This is especially striking in Aristotle, for there are whole libraries about Aristotle, and everything about him is interpreted in this way or that. People even dispute as to whether Aristotle accepted reincarnation or pre-existence. It all came about because his words can be interpreted in various ways. For he worked with a system of concepts applicable to a supersensible world, although he no longer had any discernment of that world. Plato had much more understanding of it. Therefore his system of concepts could be worked out more exactly. But Aristotle was already involved in abstract concepts and could no longer see the world to which his thought forms originally referred. Close quote, Rudolf Steiner, title, How Does Mankind Find the Christ Again? Page 33. See also Appendix 2, Aristotle, page 161. End of footnote. With Augustine it was different. The new point of view to which mankind was gradually moving in his time was already beginning to affect the minds of certain individuals of whom he was the most prominent. As a result, he was unable to remain so entirely within his sense-derived experience as the Greeks had done. He felt compelled to rise to thoughts free from sense-perceptions, to thoughts which still kept their meaning even if they were not dealing with earth, air, and sea, with stars, sun, and moon. Thoughts which had a content beyond the vision of sense. And it was toward a divinity that should have such a non-sensory content that Augustine strove. But the only philosophers and philosophies which spoke to him at that time spoke from an entirely different viewpoint from this, namely, from the spiritual material, material spiritual point of view, which we have already explained. It is not to be wondered at that souls like Augustine, striving uncertainly towards something which was not yet realizable, and reaching out, as it were, with the arms of their spirit to find it, could only discover something which they could not comprehend. It is little wonder that they sought refuge in the school of the skeptics. Footnote. In another lecture, Rudolf Steiner said, quote, Skepticism is quite a justifiable view of the world, insofar as it points man's attention to the fact that through the mere observation of what a person can gain from this sense world and his experiences therein, he can learn nothing concerning the supersensible. And if one is at the same time of the opinion that one cannot apprehend the supersensible as such, one doubts the possibility of any knowledge of the truth itself. It was through this doubt of the knowledge of the truth that Augustine passed. From this he received the strongest impulses. Close quote from the t- title from The Bridge Between the Ideal and the Real. End of footnote. But with Augustine, the conviction that he stood on a sound basis of truth and his desire to get an answer to the question of the origin of evil, were so strong that skepticism was soon outshone by the powerful light which the philosophy of Neoplatonism shed on his soul. Neoplatonism stands at the end of Greek philosophic development and is centered in Plotinus, 
It reveals to us plainly as neither the dialogues of Plato nor, still less, Aristotelian philosophy are able to do, each stage in the life of the soul, when it seeks to intensify its inner being and to advance beyond its normal experience. Plotinus is the last straggler of a type of humanity which followed quite different paths to knowledge and to the inner life of the soul from those which a later age gradually came to follow. To present-day man, Plotinus must appear fantastic, and to those who have absorbed something of medieval scholasticism, he must appear as a hopeless, indeed a dangerous visionary. I have noticed this repeatedly. My old friend Vincenz Knauer, the Benedictine monk who wrote a history of philosophy, and who has also written a book about the chief problems of philosophy from Thales to Hammerling, was, I might say, a saintly character. This man never let himself go except when anyone discussed Neoplatonism, and particularly the philosophy of Plotinus. And then he would get quite angry and would denounce Plotinus as a dangerous crank. In the same way, Franz Brentano, the intelligent Aristotelian and empiricist, who carried medieval philosophy deeply and intensely in his soul, wrote a little book called Philosophies That Create a Sensation, and there he fumes about Plotinus in the same way. Footnote. Speaking on another occasion of Brentano, as one of the last men to enter fully into what had evolved as the good side of Aristotelian scholastic philosophy, Steiner drew attention to the fact that, quote, in spite of his ability and his clear, energetic thinking, the idea of the spirit was withheld from him. He was never able to attain to this or to recognize the spirit as separate from the soul. Close quote from the Building Stones for an Understanding of the Mystery of Golgotha, Lecture 2, end of footnote. In his opinion, Plotinus, the dangerous crank, was the philosopher who, Quote, created a sensation, close quote, at the close of the ancient Greek period. Footnote, in the last thirty years a new and deep appreciation of Plotinus has arisen. Close quote. Or, excuse me, end of footnote. To understand Plotinus is really extraordinarily difficult for the modern philosopher. For the things we experience as the content of our understanding and our reason and know as the sum of our concepts about the world, are certainly not for us what they were for this philosopher of the third century. To explain myself, let me put it in this way. We comprehend the world through sense perceptions, which then, through abstraction, we convert into concepts. But we go no further than concepts. We retain them as inner psychic experience. And if we are average men of today, we are more or less convinced that our concepts are abstractions, that is, something we have abstracted out of things. But the essential thing is that we go no further. When we are dealing with sense experience, we stop at the point where we arrive at the sum of our concepts, our ideas. It was not so for Plotinus. For him this whole world of sense experience scarcely existed. But the world which really meant something to him, and of which he spoke as we speak of the world of plants and minerals and animals and human beings, 
was something which he saw lying above concepts. It was a spiritual world. And this spiritual world had for him another boundary, namely the concepts. We get our concepts by going to concrete things, making abstractions out of them, and forming these into concepts. And we say, quote, Concepts are the relating together of what we have been able to abstract in the form of ideas from the things we have observed with our senses. Close quote. Plotinus, on the other hand, paying little heed to the process of sense observation, said, quote, As human beings we live in a spiritual world, and the immediate revelation of this spiritual world, what we see as its nether boundary, is concepts. Quote. For as there lies below the concepts of the world of sense, for Plotinus there is above concepts a spiritual world, the world of thought reality, the world which is in fact the kingdom of the spirit. I might illustrate this in the following way. Let us suppose we were submerged in the sea and looking upward to the surface of the water, we saw nothing but the surface, nothing above the surface. Then this surface would be our upper boundary. And if we lived in the sea, we might perhaps have in our soul the feeling that this boundary marked the limit of our world, since we were created sea beings. But this was not the view of Plotinus. He was not concerned with the sea around him, but with the boundary which he could see the boundary of the concept world in which his soul normally lived. It was for him the nether boundary of something that lay above it. It was as though sea beings were to regard the surface of the water primarily as the nether boundary of the world of atmosphere and clouds and so on. In all this Plotinus never ceases to think that he is continuing the genuine philosophy of Plato. For him that which lies above concepts is exactly that which Plato calls quote, the world of ideas. Close quote. For Plotinus, the first thing to be said about this idea world is that it is an objective unity. Even if you were a follower of the modern subjectivist philosophy, if you and I were looking at a meadow, it would not occur to you to say, quote, I have my meadow, you have yours, and another has his meadow. Close quote. Even if you were convinced that each of us had before him only his own image of the meadow, you would speak of the meadow itself in the singular, of the one meadow which is out there. In the same way Plotinus speaks of the one idea world, not of the idea world of this mind or of another or of a third mind. To this idea world the soul belongs. This can be seen from the thought process involved in arriving at our understanding of it. The soul or psyche unfolds itself, as it were, out of this very idea world and then experiences it again. Just as the idea world creates the soul, so the soul in its turn creates the matter in which it is embodied. Thus the lower material from which the soul takes its body is actually the soul's own creation. Now for Plotinus, it is precisely at this point 
that individuation arises. For it is at this point that the soul, which otherwise participates in the whole idea world, unites itself with body A and body B, and so on. And through this fact, for the first time, individual souls appear. It is as though I had a great quantity of liquid in one volume, and having taken twenty glasses, had filled each with the liquid, so that I have this liquid, which in itself is a unity, divided into portions. This illustration applies exactly to the embodied soul, for it is now incorporated in separate bodies, which, however, it has itself created. Thus in Plotinus a man can regard himself at the first level of consciousness from the point of view of his physical exterior, his vessel. But this vessel is really only the medium through which the soul expresses itself and at the same time has become individuated. At the next higher level, man experiences inwardly his own soul, that human soul which is able to raise itself upward to the idea world. Later on there comes a still higher form of experience. That anyone should speak of abstract concepts has no meaning, excuse me, that anyone should speak of abstract concepts had no meaning for a Plotinist. He would have said, quote, what do you mean by abstract concepts? Concepts surely cannot be abstract. They cannot be just floating in mid-air. Obviously, they must have come down from the spirit world. They must be concrete revelations of the spiritual. Quote. For a Plotinist, therefore, the interpretation of ideas as any kind of abstraction is wrong. Ideas are the expression of a world of thought, a world of spirit. Indeed, to those men out of whose way of thought Plotinus and his school had evolved, ideas were objective realities which were present to their ordinary consciousness. For them to talk about concepts in the way in which we talk about them had absolutely no meaning. What they saw before them was a process of penetration by the spiritual world into individual souls. At the lowest level of this spirit penetration, the concept world is found. It is the highest point reached by the individual soul in its normal conscious experience. If, however, one pressed on to further development, then an experience was reached which could not be known by the ordinary man. At this higher level was experienced that which is above the idea world, the, quote, one, close quote. You may call it, quote, the experience of the one, close quote. It was, for Plotinus, something that was unattainable by concepts, just because it was above concepts, and could only be attained if one could sink oneself into one's own inner being without concepts. This is a state which we describe in our, quote, spiritual science, close quote, as imagination. You can read about it in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. But there is this difference. I have treated the subject from the modern point of view, whereas Plotinus treated it from the old point of view. What I call imagination is that level of consciousness which, according to Plotinus, 
stands above the idea world. Footnote. Steiner describes the three ascending stages of supersensible consciousness in different terms as imagination, inspiration, and intuition, and as probation, enlightenment, and initiation. In point of fact, in his book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, to which he here refers, he uses the second series of terms, and the first stage is there called probation. End of footnote. From this general view of the world, Plotinus derived also all his knowledge of the human soul. It is, after all, practically contained in it. In Plotinus's view, a man is truly an individual when he recognizes that his life reaches upward to something spiritual that is beyond all individuality. In our age, we are more accustomed to reach downward to the things of the senses. Now, this whole viewpoint of Plotinus, which the orthodox scholar regards as fantastic, is not something which Plotinus had merely thought out. It was not a matter of hypothesis, but of perception. And this perception, right up to the perception of the One, which only in exceptional cases could be attained, was as clear to Plotinus and as unmistakable as is for us today the perception of minerals, plants, and animals. When he spoke of the soul, of the logos as inherent in the noose of the idea world and of the one, he spoke of them as realities which were in actual fact directly experienced by him. For him the whole world was, in a true sense, a spiritual reality. Footnote, quote, For Plotinus, reality is the spiritual world as known by spirit, or spirit as knowing the spiritual world. Here only we find the fully real and the completely true. Most commentators on Plotinus have not emphasized this nearly enough. Close quote. From W. R. Inge, titled The Philosophy of Plotinus, End of footnote. Now, this was a different shade of philosophy from Manichaean and from the one which Augustine strove after. Manichaeism recognized a reality in which sense and supersense are blended. For it, the words and concepts matter and spirit have as yet no contrasting meaning. Augustine strove to reach a soul experience of the spiritual that is entirely free from sense experience, and so to escape from a material view of life. For Plotinus, the whole world is spiritual, and things of the senses do not, merely as such, exist. For what appears as material is only the lowest method of revealing the spiritual. All is spirit. And if we only penetrate sufficiently deeply into reality, Everything is revealed as spirit. This Augustine could not accept, because he had not the necessary outlook. For Augustine lived in advance of his age. Just as Plotinus, although he lived in the third century A.D., was a survivor of the olden times when men were able to feel and perceive that in the idea world a spiritual world is manifesting itself to us from above, so Augustine 
was a forerunner of an age when men would no longer be able to feel and perceive this. Augustine himself could no longer perceive it. He could only learn it by having it told to him. He might hear what it was, that it was said to be so, and he might develop in regard to it a feeling that it contained something which helped humanity on its road toward truth. But though he felt that there must be some hidden explanation of this world of sense, he could not fight, fight his way through to that explanation. That was the difficulty in which Augustine stood in relation to Plotinism. And though he was never completely diverted from striving toward an inner understanding of it, the vision did not reveal itself to him. It was in this state of soul that he withdrew into a solitary life, in which he got to know the Bible and Christianity, and later on the sermons of Ambrose and the epistles of St. Paul. Finally, this mood brought him to the point where he could say, quote, Plotinus sought the true nature of the world, first of all in the essential being of the idea world of the nous, intellect, and then in the one, which may only be attained by man under specially favorable conditions of soul, but lo, this one has now appeared, in a body, on earth, in human form, in Christ Jesus. Close quote. This thought leapt at him from the conviction of a Bible truth. Excuse me. This thought leapt at him with the conviction of a Bible truth. He said to himself, quote, Thou hast no need to struggle upward to the one. Thou needest but look upon that which the historical tradition of Christ Jesus reveals. There is the one. Come down from heaven and become man. Close quote. And so Augustine exchanged the philosophy of Plotinus for the faith of the Christian Church. He expresses this change of attachment clearly enough, as when he says, quote, Who could be so blind as to say, subquote, The Church of the Apostles merits no faith. The Church, which is so faithful and supported by such brotherly unity of mind, that she has transmitted the writings of the Apostles to posterity as conscientiously as she has kept in direct succession their episcopal sees down to the present bishops. Subquote close, total quote close. This is the fact upon which Augustine laid the chief stress, that it can be shown out of a continuous tradition and one worthy of belief, handed down through the course of centuries and derived from men who themselves knew the disciples of the Lord, that there had appeared upon earth the very one to whom Plotinus had learned the way of attainment. And now there arose in Augustine the effort to apply Plotinism. I'm sorry, I might be pronouncing that right. Plotinism is how I want to say it. Insofar as he could get to the heart of it, to the understanding of that which Christianity had revealed to his feeling and perception. Footnote, quote, Plotinus repeatedly appeals to the religious experience of his readers. He knows that he cannot carry us with him further than we have the power to see for ourselves. For it is as the greater self that we come to know God, not as a separate anthropomorphic being over against other ourselves. 
Our struggle to reach him is at the same time a struggle for self-liberation. We lose our soul in order to find it again in God. There is no barrier between the human and divine natures. The human soul has only to strip itself of those outer integuments which are no part of its true nature in order to expand freely by means of the, quote, organic filaments, close quote, which unite it with all spiritual being. This expansion is at the same time an intensifying of life, an awakening from the dream of sensuous existence. Our environment, which we make while it makes us, changes all the time. Our perception becomes spiritual intuition. The air we breathe becomes the atmosphere of eternity, not of time. The problem of immortality is changed for us in such a way that it ceases to be a vague and chimerical hope and becomes an experience. Sentimus et experimua nos eternos essa, as Spinoza says, close quote from W. R. Inge, The Philosophy of Plotinus. End of footnote. This is clear from the fact that he sought to comprehend the spiritual world by means of Neoplatonic and Plotinistic concepts in order to show that above man there is a spiritual world from which the Christ descended. For example, he carried further the application to Christianity of the concept of the One. To Plotinus, the One was something directly experienced, but Augustine, who had not been able to attain to this experience, defined the One by the abstract concept Being, the idea world of the abstract concept Knowing, and the Psyche by the abstract concept Living, or even Love. He used this Plotinistic analogy to explain the doctrine of the Trinity with its three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There's a small little graph here, reading left to right. The One being the Father. Line 2, Idea World, knowing the Son. Third line, Psyche, life or love, the Holy Spirit. Footnote, quote, Augustine Confessions, uh, chapter 13, illustrates the doctrine of the Trinity by the analogy of the Trinity in the human spirit. Being corresponds to God the Father, knowing as a self-representation of being to the Son, and willing or love in which being and knowing embrace each other to the Holy Spirit. Hence the idea that in the Holy Spirit the Father and the Son embrace each other, and that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Trinity, Divera Religiona, appeared to him to be a law of all existence, for in all things he distinguished the universal being, the special form of being, and the unity of both. Close quote, A. Neander, titled The History of Christian Dogmas. End of footnote. If a serious attempt were made, to discover the content of Augustine's soul when he spoke of the three persons of the Trinity, it would be found that it was filled with the knowledge he had derived from Plotinus. This knowledge he also carried into his understanding of the Bible. The effect of all this far outlived Augustine. 
His conception of the Trinity, for example, is found again in Scotus Origina, who lived in the ninth century at the court of Charles the Bald. Two footnote John Scotus Origina, described by Steiner as a quote, erratic boulder, close quote, appeared in the midst of the Dark Ages and by Hassa as quote, a st- standing so high and solitary above his time that the anathema of the church only reached him after centuries, close quote, was head of the famous palace school of the Western Frankish kingdom, founded by Charlemagne and carried on by one of his successors, Charles the Bald. See also note on page 64, end of footnote. He wrote a book on the divisions and classifications of nature in which we find a similar trinity, footnote Divisione Natura, end of footnote. Thus, 400 years after Augustine, Christianity was still interpreting its content by means of Plotinism. The element in Plotinism, however, which Augustine preserved most strongly of all, was one that was fundamental to it, namely the relation of the individual to humanity as a whole. You will recall that only insofar as the psyche reaches down into the material, as into a vessel, is man an earthly individuality. The point of view of Plotinism was that at the lower earth level men appear as individuals, but that at a higher level all humanity appears as a single unit. If then we rise to higher levels, if we ascend from the human sphere to the divine or spirit sphere where the trinity originates, we have to do no longer with individual man, but, as it were, with the species, with humanity as a whole. On account of our modern way of thinking, we today cannot visualize humanity as a whole as directly as Augustine, with his understanding of Plotinism, was able to do. Now, Adopting this concept of humanity as a single unit, Augustine applied it to the doctrine of the fall of man, and in doing so identified humanity with Adam. In Augustine's teaching about the fall of man, Adam was all humanity. Inasmuch as this primal Adam had come down to earth and had left the spirit world, he was, in regard to his being, united with the earth. At the same time, because the essence of his being was derived from above and had not its source in the imperfection of matter, he was possessed both of free will and also of the ability not to sin. Footnote. Augustine speaks of this in considering the true freedom of the redeemed. Quote, it does not follow that they will not have free choice because sins will have no power to attract them. Nay, rather, they will be more truly free when set free from the delight of sinning to enjoy the steadfast delight of not sinning. For the first freedom of choice which was given to man when he was created upright gave the ability not to sin but also the ability to sin. This new freedom will be the more powerful just because it will not be able to sin and this not by its unaided natural ability, but by the gift of God. God is unable to sin. He who partakes of God has received from him the inability to sin. The first immortality, which Adam lost by sinning, 
was the ability not to die. The new immortality will be the inability to die. In the same way, the first freedom of choice conferred the ability not to sin. The new freedom will confer the inability to sin. It surely cannot be said that God himself has not freedom of choice because he is unable to sin. Close quote, Augustine, De Civitate Dei, end of footnote. Moreover, because it was possible for this primal man, Adam, to be free and not to sin, it was also possible for him not to die. Then came the influence of the spirit whom Augustine saw as the enemy spirit, the satanic being. He tempted and seduced the man, and he fell right down to the level of material being. With him fell all humanity. It was not one individual who had sinned. In Adam the whole of mankind sinned. Now, this interpretation of humanity Augustine acquired entirely from Plotinism. Nevertheless, if we <clears throat> look carefully between the lines of Augustine's writings, particularly the later ones, we see clearly how extraordinarily difficult it became for him always to regard mankind as a whole in this way and to entertain the possibility that in Adam the whole of humanity fell into sin. For in Augustine the modern man is already awakening, and within him the forerunner of the future is in conflict with the survivor of the past. There was something to live in him, the individualistic man. Excuse me. There was beginning to live in him, the individualistic man, who felt that every individual grows increasingly responsible for his own deeds and discoveries. <clears throat> At certain moments it appeared to him impossible to regard the individual merely as a unit in the whole human race. But Plotinism was so deeply fixed in him that at, another, that at other times he could only regard humanity as a whole. In the same way, Augustine explained the universal human condition of sin and mortality as due to the impossibility of man having free will or becoming immortal by reason of the fact that all humanity had fallen and therefore, was just, and therefore had been diverted from its original destiny. Were God only just, he would have simply thrown humanity aside. But he is not only just, Augustine felt, he is also merciful. And therefore he decided to save a part of mankind. Mark well, a part. God's decision destined a part of mankind to receive grace, whereby it will be led out of the condition of the inability to have free will or to be immortal into the condition of being able to be free and immortal, though these possibilities can now only be realized after death. But it is one part only that is restored to this condition. The other part of mankind, the quote, not chosen, close quote, remains in the condition of sin. Thus, humanity, from the Augustinian point of view, falls absolutely into these two divisions, those who are destined for bliss without any deserving of their own, simply because it is so ordained in the divine plan, 
and those who, whatever they do, cannot attain grace, but are predestined and predetermined to damnation. The individual, therefore, remains completely impotent in regard to his ultimate destiny. This view, which goes by the name of predestination, was reached by Augustine, as we have seen, as a result of the way in which he regarded humanity as a whole. <clears throat> we shall speak in the next lecture about the terrible conflicts which resulted from this idea of predestination and the Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism which grew out of it. Meanwhile, there is one further point which I wish to make. We have seen how Augustine stood as a vital personality, struggling between two points of view. The first of these looked upward toward the spiritual world and saw humanity as a whole, as a single entity. This he expressed in his doctrine of predestination. <clears throat> his other point of view was his dawning consciousness of human individuality and from this there awoke in him the urge to rise to an inner experience of spiritual reality, free of the senses. Indeed, this urge could only have originated out of such a consciousness. Now it was this consciousness of human individuality, of which the men of older ages had not been aware, that became the characteristic feature of the age of which Augustine was a forerunner. We today regard many forms of expression as mere conventional phraseology, but Klopstock in the 18th century was in earnest and not merely turning a phrase when he began his titled Messiah with the words, quote, Sing, immortal soul, of sinful man's salvation. Close quote. Homer had begun equally sincerely, quote, Sing to me, O goddess of the wrath, close quote, or, quote, Sing, O muse, to me now, of the man far-traveled Odysseus, close quote. Homer and the men of his day were not speaking of something which existed in them as individuals, but of something that spoke through them as universal humanity, the race soul, the undivided psyche. When Homer bids the muse sing in place of himself, it is not just a conventional expression. Later the feeling of individuality awoke in mankind, and Klopstock spoke out of his inner consciousness, even if not with deliberate intention, when he began his Messiah poem with the words, Sing, immortal soul, that is to say, Sing, thou individual being that livest in each man as his individuality. Now, Augustine was one of the first of those who really felt the individual nature of man with its personal responsibility. This constituted the dilemma in which he lived. The individual, striving after the sense-free spiritual, became part of his own experience. Thus there existed within him a subjective conflict. Now, the understanding of Plotinism, which had still been possible for Augustine and had so deeply influenced him, in later times dried up. After the Greek philosophers, the last followers of Plato and Plotinus had been compelled to go into exile into Persia, where they established their successors in the Academy of Gundishapur, uh, footnote, see Appendix 3, page 165. This capacity 
End of footnote. This capacity of looking up into the spirit world died away in Western Europe, and all that remained was, was that filtered form of Greek philosophy which Aristotle had bequeathed to posterity, and that only in a few fragments. Footnote. Rudolf Steiner's interpretation of history is supported by T. Whitaker in his book titled The Neoplatonists. In relating the Proclus 410-485, to is said to have declared that, quote, if it were in his power, he would withdraw from the knowledge of men. For the present, all ancient books except the Timaeus and the sacred oracles, close quote, he comments as follows. Quote, the reason he gave was that persons coming to them without preparation are injured. But the manner in which the aspiration was soon to be fulfilled in the Western world suggests that the philosopher had a deeper reason. May he not have seen the necessity of a break in culture, if a new line of intellectual development was ever to be struck out? He and his school indeed devoted themselves to the task, not of effacing accumulated knowledge for a time, but of storing it up. Still, in the latter part of the period, they must have been consciously preserving it for a dimly foreseen future rather than for the next age. Whatever may have been the intention of the utterance, it did, as a matter of fact, prefigure the conditions under which a new culture was to be evolved in the West. Close quote. End of footnote. <laughs> the Asian offshoot of Greek philosophy came back eventually to Europe in a roundabout way, as we shall see, via Arabia. But it had no longer any consciousness of an actual idea world, and there was no trace of Plotinism in it. In Western Europe, therefore, the situation arose that man had now to derive the spiritual out of himself, that he could only produce the spiritual as an abstraction from his own experience. Footnote. Steiner develops this thought of the continuous evolutionary change in human consciousness all through history in other lectures. Quote, if we look back into the times of pre-Christian evolution, we can feel how different was the outlook of men in those days. Not that a complete change took place in a single moment, but the event of Golgotha came at the end of a period of, evolu of evolution during which man beheld, together with the world of the senses, also the spiritual. Remote as it may appear to modern man, incredible as it may easily appear to him, it is nevertheless a fact that in pre-Christian times men did not see merely trees or merely plants, but together with the trees and plants they saw something of spirit reality. But as the time drew near when the mystery of Golgotha was to take place, the civilization which bore within it this power of vision was coming to an end. Something completely new was now to come into the evolution of mankind. As long as man beholds the spiritual in the physical things that are all around him, he cannot have a consciousness which allows the impulse of freedom to be born within it. The birth of the impulse of freedom is necessarily accompanied by a loss of this spiritual vision. Man had to find himself deserted by the divine and spiritual, when he looked out upon the external world. The impulse of freedom inevitably implies that if man would have again a vision of the spiritual, he must exert himself inwardly and draw it forth from the depths of his own soul. Close quote 
Rudolf Steiner from title Easter, the festival of warning. The end of the footnote. <laughs> it was felt that when a man sees lions and thereupon forms the concept lions, when he sees wolves and thereupon forms the concept wolves, when he sees human beings and thereupon forms the concept men, these concepts exist only in himself and arise out of his own individual consciousness. Footnote, see page 69, end of footnote. This idea, which soon began to have a far, began to have a very far-reaching significance, would have been meaningless to Plotinus to Plotinism. But the living connection with Plotinism, which as we have seen helped Augustine in his understanding of the mystery of Christ Jesus, had been completely severed by the closing of the schools of philosophy in Athens by Justinian in 529. As a result of this, the problem of knowledge and reality became more and more baffling for many people. They expressed it thus, quote, in the Christian traditions and scriptures which we have received, we are told of a spiritual world. We also experience out of our own individual being sense-free concepts that are abstractions from the material. How are they related to the real nature of the universe? Are these concepts that we form for ourselves only something which has come into existence in ourselves? Or are they connected? with the world outside us." These questions emerged in an extremely abstract form, but at the same time they were the deepest and most earnest concern of mankind and of the whole medieval church. Both in their abstractness and in their urgency, these questions presented themselves to the minds of Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas. Later, in an even more abstract form, they became the point at issue between realism and nominalism. The great question, then, which the medieval scholastics put to themselves was this, quote, What is your, our relationship to a world of which all that we know is derived from concepts which can only arise in ourselves out of our own experience as individuals? Close quote. You will be able to feel the whole depth of this scholastic question, if you consider once again the two opposing viewpoints out of which it had arisen. On the one hand, you have the theory of predestination into which Augustine had shaped his Plotinism. With its submergence of the individual in humanity as a whole, together with the belief that only part of humanity, and they only through God's predestinating decree, could share in his grace and inherit eternal life, while the other part was doomed to eternal damnation from the first, whatever it might do. On the other hand, there was the awakening consciousness of human individuality, out of which man had been able to acquire the content of his own knowledge. But that awakening consciousness of individuality had not been strong enough in Augustine to modify his dread concept of predestination. For Augustine, mankind as a whole remained the reality. For Thomas Aquinas, each separate man was an individual. How then do the viewpoints fit together, the cosmic process bound up with Augustine's view of predestination, 
and the actual experience of the separate human individuality? How can the fact of all that the individual is able to achieve for himself be reconciled with Augustine's total rejection of human individuality? For it was because he did not wish the idea of human individuality to develop that Augustine formulated the doctrine of predestination. In order to preserve the concept of humanity as a whole, he suppressed entirely the idea of human individuality. Footnote. By attributing guilt to the whole of humanity, Augustine excluded the possibility of individual innocence, and by making man's spiritual future dependent upon a prenatal divine edict, he excluded the possibility of the individual working out his own salvation. End of footnote. Thomas Aquinas, on the other hand, when he faced the scholastic problem, had before his mind only the individual man thirsting for knowledge. Thomas had to seek to understand human knowledge and its relationship to the universe in the light of that very fact of human individuality which Augustine had excluded from his treatment of humanity. It is not sufficient for us to express this in an abstract way, merely as a problem of reason and logic. It must be grasped with the whole heart and with the whole human personality. Only then shall we be able to see how heavily the burden of this problem weighed upon those men who carried it in the 13th century. The end of Lecture 1